Oh, amen. <laughs> wow, it really is a privilege to be with you. Praise the Lord. God is good all the time. Amen. I, 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 I thank you for uh, the shout out in the video. That video was awesome. I, I certainly didn't expect to be. Yeah, that was awesome. It was good. Um, what a thoughtful thing. I know, oh, I don't need this right now. I know the um, October is, uh, has been clergy appreciation, but I, I'm just grateful for the appreciation of the entire ministry team. That was awesome. And I didn't expect to be in there, so I'm really grateful for that. You know, I, um, when the opening song this morning, He is Exalted, and I was like a throwback to the 80s, you know, or late 80s. And then I said, well, Carlton has a birthday tomorrow, so he might have been like born when that song was made or something like that. <laughs> Happy birthday, brother. <laughs> I um, anyway brought back some memories, good ones, good ones. So, but once again, I thank you for your gracious receptivity, your eagerness to follow Jesus, dynamic worship experience, um, your, the creative ways that you're looking. I like this reverse uh, trick or treat thing, giving candy before uh, people come and ask for it. I just think that's awesome. <laughs> anyway, let's take a moment to pray again. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. <laughs> Amen. We are grateful. We're grateful, Lord, for this privilege we have, this opportunity we have. We, we, we had so many restrictions about coming together, and, and we are grateful that we can actually physically be here or we can, we can uh, have technology that allows us to stream in and see what's happening in real time. There are just so many ways, or, or we can even check it later. I mean, there's just such flexibility there that we are grateful for, but, but we would never trade, Lord, the, uh, the opportunity to commune with you and with sisters and brothers of like precious faith. And we are grateful for the opportunity of getting into the scriptures and finding how these old words still speak to us now. These are indeed wonderful words of life. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to communicate them faithfully and accurately and in a way that can be helpful for all of us. I thank you for this new com. Um, fellowship, this new community, and I pray you continue to bless them and strengthen them and energize them by your spirit. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I am glad that our children are grown up because Halloween was challenging when they were little. We didn't know how to deal with the holiday as young parents and with Christians preaching against Halloween. That was the time we came up in. For you, maybe it's like preaching against Harry Potter. I think I told you I played a Harry Potter clip at church one time, and I, has, I, I, I even had all these disclaimers and stuff. And Yeah, well, <laughs> you can imagine it didn't go over real well with some people. But, but, but I, get, I get how, I mean, it was just a tough time. And then we had these, you know, we had our share of harvest parties or some version of that, so that they could still dress up and get candy. I mean, because there are all manner of candy delivery systems, because I think that's really what it's about. It's the cosplay and the candy. I get that. In the suburbs, kids get candy out of trunks of cars. This is like a thing now, trunk or treat. I don't remember this when our kids were, well, we were in, in the city, so people didn't have many cars. I guess could do it on the subway or something. But dressing up isn't just for kids either. Right? I mean, I remember when Susan and I, we went to a young adult, um, 
harvest party or whatever it was so you could dress up. We were one of the few young adults in the group that were already married and had a kid. We, we were young parents. Um, but anyway, we come showing up to the party and there's this guy coming down the street in a tuxedo and blackface. I'm like, I'm not going there. So we stood time standing outside. The church was predominantly white, but you know, so we're standing outside like, do we go in or not? I'm like, I was already ready to wash my hands in this place, you know. I tell you, I'm from New York, so it doesn't take much for me to say, enough of y'all. I had, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> but Susan is nicer than I am. So we, we decided to go to the party, um, but I said I'm going to have to say something to the person in charge, and I did. But he, you know, I don't think he felt it like I felt it. So he said, well, if you've got a problem, go talk to that guy. So I did. Um, you know, a while later, I got a call actually from one of the elders of the church. I almost forgot about that. He, was, he called me because this elder was, you know, he liked me, he was kind toward me, but he couldn't figure out why I was upset about this thing. Um, I'm surprised that he was surprised. But the funny thing is that even though that was years ago, every Halloween there are these cringeworthy stories of racist costumes that somehow people thought were funny and not offensive. Well. I don't know. I'm not going to go on and on about Halloween, but be careful. Friends don't let friends wear racist costumes for Halloween. <laughs> but, but today is not just Halloween. It's Reformation Day. Now, I grew up in a Protestant church, but we were so charismatic, we didn't know what Reformation was. We didn't know who Martin Luther was. At least I didn't know. I didn't grow up with the knowledge of All Hallows' Eve or All Saints. I didn't know any of that stuff. But today marks the 450th, I think, anniversary of Martin Luther nailing these 95 issues he had related to the practice of Christian faith to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And Martin Luther provoked what we call the Protestant Reformation. I have a quote from Luther here that I wanted to share with you, um, and it's got actually nothing to do with the Reformation. Apparently he said, whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. <laughs> now, now, see, that quote can work in a covenant church. Unlike the Harry Potter references in some churches. So I figured you guys could appreciate that. But in all seriousness, Martin Luther, you know, obviously said some things more seriously about the Reformation. And the Reformation was a very serious time period. In fact, so much so that people were killing people, you know, that they were calling heretics. I mean, I lean toward Anabaptism and the Reform folks, uh, they were killing Anabaptists. I mean, but, but with all of Martin Luther's imperfections, he paved the way for us to investigate and even interrogate our faith in Jesus rather than simply accept what some leaders told us. In fact, Luther translated the entire Bible into German, the whole Bible and the Apocrypha, so people could read it in their own language. We have the Bible in our language with a lot of different versions, but we're still a divided people. So, so I think what the Reformation has been teaching us, even though it's put the Bible in the hands of ordinary people and emphasized faith alone and, and grace alone and, you know, uh, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, all the solas, all that, we've learned all of that, but we still found out that having the scriptures in front of our eyes, while it's necessary, having it in our hearts is critical. And that's much of what we've been trying to see in this short writing called 1 John. 
And here we are at the end of the letter, and John is offering encouraging words that focus on life in the light that we've been talking about throughout this study. So officially, I was to end today with the fifth chapter of 1 John, but uh, uh, by God's grace, you guys give me opportunity to come back next week, thank you, <laughs> to uh, look at this topic of race and, and justice and reconciliation. But before we dive deeper into chapter 5, let me just remind us all of a few things that came up earlier. Uh, on the 3rd of October, we talked about joyful solidarity. We are meant to share life with God and with each other. That life is characterized by light and love. God is love. And on the 10th of October, I, I called the message Opposites Detract. We got to abandon the lust for the world's way of being, embrace God's way of love. There was a line in that last song we said about, that had something with that very same theme of letting go of these um, uh, uh, shiny things of the world, as it were. The 17th, lavish love, I called it. That's chapter 3. God's love is all-embracing, overwhelming, so we ought to ex experience it and share it. And then last week I talked about perfect love. We love God because God loved us first, and perfect love rejects fear. Now we're going to look at chapter 5, and uh, I have been working from the New Revised Standard Version, at least most of the time. Today it's from the NIV, and I'll explain why later. But we're going to look at the um, New International Version for chapter 5 of 1 John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his command, commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts the testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those who sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God who does not continue to, does not continue to sin, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 
We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Well, today we end the letter by returning to a topic that we started with, life, specifically eternal life. Sisters and brothers here at Newcom, please know my goal today as I wrap up this series is to encourage you personally and collectively. As I mentioned, it's really been a delight to be with you all. I want you to trust that God is forming you by love so you're able to love, to love God, to love yourself, and to love your neighbor as yourself, formed by love for love. And God's intention for humanity is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we would live in love with God and love for others for all eternity. And my finite mind, my limited brain power, has difficult with this concept of eternity. I don't know what eternal means or what it really feels like. I I, I guess there's a Marvel movie, The Eternals. It's on my list. I still have to catch up. There's a couple other Marvel movies I haven't caught up with. But whatever eternal means, in the context of life, it's a good thing. God promises eternal life for all who will entrust themselves to Jesus. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, makes eternal life possible because the Lord defeated the devil and destroys the devil's work. Jesus cleanses us, amen, from sin's infection. We are no longer victims. We are no longer enslaved by sin. We are conquerors, amen. This is how John opens up chapter 5. He says that we have conquered the world. That's what he says. What does John mean when he says we have conquered the world? Well, it's, it's not some pinky in the brain scheme. The same thing we do every night, pinky. Try to take over the world. I was a fan. <laughs> but conquering or overcoming the world is not megalomania. It's actually a very peaceful thing. Because remember, when we talked about the world back in chapter 2, we noted that the world for John and other New Testament writers refers to a system that is against God. John straight out calls it antichrist. The antichrist system operates in darkness. It prefers lies over truth. It It rejects the way of love. And when I think about that, I can't help but to think of our own world that's shrouded in mistrust, unsure of science, religion, politics, education. I mean, the list goes on. Satan is a deceiver, and deception leads to division, and human beings are divided and operate with mistrust, even of our neighbors. And John says we have conquered the way of the world. We have overcome the forces of hostility aligned against us. Sisters and brothers, in practical terms, this means that we are not beholden to liars, deceivers, dividers, or haters. Amen. We do not march to their drumbeat. As conquerors, we are free, free to love, to serve, to listen, to learn, to be like Jesus in a world that does not seem to recognize him. Eternal life means being a conqueror over the world's way of death. Amen. Well, John makes clear that our victory comes through Jesus 
But what isn't clear is what John means by coming through water and blood. He says, not water alone, and, and then how the Spirit bears witness with them. I'm sure the first readers of this letter understood what he meant, but we are forced to speculate. Blood seems the least ambiguous, likely referring to the death of Jesus, which has been the way it's been described before. But we don't know about the water. And when Christians read water, every time we read water, we assume it's baptism because, you know, it's water. Honestly, I don't know what John is getting at. Um, But I tend to think that John, if it's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, perhaps, associates water with life. It might be getting at the humanity of Jesus. In some way, the life, the death, the spirit of Jesus unite to testify of the eternal life we have. In essence, after John says that we have conquered the world, he goes on to say we share eternal life with Jesus, the Son of God. That's my second point. We share eternal life with Jesus, the Son of God. Sometimes I can get caught up in the tensions of the world. I gave up on Facebook or Meta. I made a metamorphosis to something else. Now, I know old people generally use Facebook. My friends are still there. We grandparents, that's where we put our grandkid pictures. I just, I just got tired of it all. I still, though, have my Instagram and Twitter accounts because, you know, that's where my scholar friends hang out. So, so I, I try to regulate. I do. I try to regulate how much I engage because I get emotionally charged. And I can even get depressed after spending time on social media. Now, I know it's a thing. It's a thing in our society, and I would like to think I'm oblivious to those things. But no, it happens to me too. And, and when I read these words here in 1 John, I am encouraged to remember that there is life beyond this life. I cannot put my hope in these temporal things. Let me encourage you to spend some time thinking about what eternal life might mean. I appreciate how our sister Emily drew us to reflect a bit on love and God's love before we uh, moved into this time uh, that we have right now. And, and it's hard for me sometimes to be really specific about some takeaways because I'm, I'm just getting to know you all as a community, so I don't like to make specific suggestions to people until I can, you know, have some specificity on what you're dealing with. But I can make some general recommendations because I think it's true of all humanity. And I really believe that because human existence can be disappointing in so many ways, God wants us to have meaningful life. He says, Jesus says it in the Gospel of John, I come that you might have life and have it to the full, abundant, meaningful life. And that life is meant to last forever, eternal life. Even when hearts stop and brainwave activity ceases, our spirits will rest with Jesus and one day will rise from the dead to be with our Lord forever. We believe this. It's, it's, it's the conversation he had with Martha when Lazarus was dead. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Do you believe this, he asked Martha. 
I'm not saying that we ignore current realities and only dream about pie in the sky when we die. What I am saying is that rather than becoming overwhelmed with the problems of evil in the world, we take some time, we stop, we breathe, and we imagine. Now, John Lennon says, imagine there's no heaven. Tap our feet and nod our heads because, you know, it's a good jam. But John Lennon's utopia says, and no religion too. Okay, okay. I get that John wanted us to be united. But maybe his way is actually limited. Maybe this John, the one who writes this letter, wants us to imagine a bit differently. Maybe there is life beyond this life. And when we can imagine better, we can manage current expectations better. We can stop thinking that everything depends on us. We can stop stressing over evil. We can do the best we can to love because love actually is the way. God is love. So John says we have conquered the world. He says then that we can share eternal life with the Son of God, and there's yet another encouragement related to eternal life. John says we can experience life-giving prayer, life-giving prayer. Now, it's funny because the words that he gives as encouragement in verses 16 and 17, where he talks about sin unto death, the, the irony is that John writes to encourage us, but I can't tell you how many Christians read these verses and then they've wondered, wait, 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 what, what's that sin unto death? Did I do it? And they get stressed over these verses when John wants the very opposite. He wants to encourage us. John's not giving a warning here. Instead, he's encouraging, he's inviting us to pray, and not just for ourselves, but for others who might be caught up in evil. Now, once again, we are at a place where we're not 100% certain what John is talking about. We don't know what a sin, and literally could be rendered a sin toward death, or as the NIV says, unto death. And this is why I actually picked the NIV over the NRSV today, because the NRV, NRSV says a mortal sin. And all of a sudden, that sounds like Roman Catholic categories of mortal sin versus a venial sin, right? A, a really serious sin versus, eh, not so bad sin. But for me, I, I think about what John says in chapter 3, where he defines sin as lawlessness, and he connects that to being aligned with Satan. And once again, Satan rears his head in John's message here right close by in verse 19. He says the whole world is under control of the evil one. So my own speculation is that when John writes of sin toward death, he's getting at that antichrist alignment with Satan. Remember that for these Christians that John's writing to, they saw some people pull away and leave the community aligning themselves with an antichrist spirit. So John doesn't give instructions about how to pray for them. Instead, he focuses on the sisters and brothers in the community who might get caught up in something, and it's clear what we should do. I also think we can infer what we should not do. We don't gossip. We don't condemn. We don't judge. We don't join in the sin either. (laughs) What John says is, pray. We pray so they can experience the life they are meant to experience. If a sister or brother is caught up in sin, 
pray. Life-giving prayer comes through sisters and brothers. Now, I know we could spend all day, especially people who, who have some experience reading the Bible and, and, um, and tend toward you know, some academic study, and I hang around those kind of people. They could focus all day on, what's that sin toward death? And miss the bigger point <laughs> that the entire community can help each other to experience eternal life starting now even. We pray and God gives life. He says in verses 14 and 15 that we can have confidence when we pray. God hears and answers prayer. Now, I've said it before. God's not Santa. He's under no obligation to fulfill our selfish wish list. However, God is committed to giving us all we need for life and godliness. So God is ready. God is willing. God is able to answer our prayers, including our prayers for sisters and brothers who get caught up in sin. So as you're walking through what this contemplative life means, I am sure you are finding that it's not all about you. God forms us so that we can be good disciples of Jesus who touch this world in positive ways, who love deeply because we know we are loved deeply. Well, it is time to wrap up this first John, and I'm going to share some things personally with you right now. In a couple of weeks, Susan and I will be headed to Washington, D.C. for me to preach at the 20th anniversary of Peace Fellowship Church. We, we started that church out of our home <laughs> about a year after I resigned from serving a church on Capitol Hill. And I've shared some stories about that church on Capitol Hill how it made me reluctant about pastoral ministry, made me a bit gun-shy about doing church work. <laughs> Had some challenges related to just evangelicalism in general, about working with white people, a whole lot of things that church did to me. <laughs> so when we started Peace Fellowship Church, I even was slow to do this to start a church, to plant a church. A friend of mine who had left that church on Capitol Hill before I did, African-American brother, would come by almost every Wednesday. We would hang out and pray, uh, maybe sometimes eat together. And we started reflecting on all the things we thought church could be. And he was visiting and had been visiting for months a whole bunch of churches in a different part, well, throughout the city, but largely in a different neighborhood. We moved away from Capitol Hill and to um, a challenging neighborhood. And if you know DC at all, there's a river that the Anacostia River cuts off part of the city from the other part. And there's two wards there. And they refer to that section as east of the river, a section of town that doesn't get all the attention and resources. Although now it's starting to get gentrified, but another story. So we decided eventually to start Peace Fellowship Church, and we were very idealistic about what Christian community could be. I, I drew a circle and cut it up into eight slices because, you know, I'm from New York, and it reminded me of pizza. And, uh, and those were our eight core values. But they were in a circle because we didn't want to rank them. We said they all have to come together. So, so we took all these core values, one of them being welcoming the stranger which tended to resonate with a lot of people, that that was a core value of ours because we felt like church was often putting up a hand, had to check you out first. 
We say, come on. I think we largely lived into our ideals. I confess that as, a, as I was getting older, I got a little tired of being the guy in charge. And I was hoping I could teach full time. But actually, I took another pastoral call and I went to the Sanctuary Covenant Church. And in God's providence, I found a whole new church family in the Covenant Church. I happily transferred my credential. I found a new home in the Covenant Church. And now I teach at North Park, which I don't know if would have happened if I had not taught it. I pastored a Covenant Church, but I don't go down those what-if roads too much. But throughout my decades of ministry, I've seen leaders come and go. I've seen churches start and end. I've seen fads come and go. And I see Christian arrogance all over the place. Our church has more people than yours. My pastor's better than yours. We're more multicultural than you. Our building is bigger. Now, some people don't say it with a swagger like that, but they're still boasting. And they act like we're in a competition. My goodness, we're on the same team. Yeah, we are. But there's still this arrogance that's there. And I'm afraid that Christians have made their leader or their money or their property or their musicians or their politics or their brand into an idol. And idols, they're not crude figurines or statues like in, you know, ancient Mesopotamia or something. Idols signify something. They signify the way of the world and not the way of the Lord. Idols point to something. They point to what we love. Idols are what gets our best energy and resources. Idols reflect us. Funny thing, God has, John has not used the word idols until the very last verse of this whole writing. Yet in many ways, his entire writing has been about idolatry because it was focused on love. It's misdirected love that manufactures idols. Hopefully that's recorded. I know you're not like a loud amen church, except for my brother. (laughs) But hopefully, you know, like when you're driving to work on Wednesday or hopping on a, a public transit or walking or riding your bike or whatever, it'll hit you. And you'll say, somewhere inside, right? (laughs) It's it's misdirected love that manufactures idols. And because I'm older, I can say it now, just like John says it, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Your job, your intellect, your privilege, your bank account, maybe even your idea of what church is can be an idol. So let me encourage you here. Stay on the good track that you're on. Don't look for real life anywhere besides the life giver, Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of cool things in this world to enjoy, and I hope you enjoy them. Sometimes I'm jealous of you young folks who get to experience things better than we had it, like like functioning... um, car seats that turn into strollers and vice versa. There's just some remarkable things that I wish we had when we were younger, but there are a lot of cool things to enjoy. But only Jesus gives real, abundant, meaningful, eternal life. 
sisters and brothers. Keep on loving God, loving yourself, and loving other people, and keep yourself from idols. God bless you. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good. Your mercies endure forever. I thank you, Lord God, for this church community. I thank you, Lord, for people I've not even gotten to have conversation with, but so grateful for. People who would take the time to not just listen to me, but to share life with others, who would celebrate their leaders um, and their ministry leaders, who would, who would try in all manner of creative ways to say that Jesus is still alive. Jesus saves and Jesus cares. So I'm asking, Lord God, that you would continue to pour out your spirit among this community. Bring the blessings in whatever form that are needed. I pray you would bring it, Lord. For whatever resources, financial, personnel, whatever is needed, I am asking, Lord God, that you would meet that need. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to add to the number, not so that we could boast in number, but because we could share the love more broadly. So I pray, Lord God, for your will to be done, and I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.